Well, this morning we are in the second week of a sermon series that I've entitled The Practical Gospel. And it's learning to put into practice what Paul said in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, where he said, put the verse up there, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It's a great verse. He basically is saying, you know, you don't work for your salvation. You're not saved because of your good works, because of what you've done. That doesn't make you right with God. But once God has made you right with him, work out the implications of your salvation into every area of your life. And that's what this sermon series is about. It's thinking through, all right, what difference does the gospel of Jesus Christ make in every area of our life? This is not how sometimes it's spun as like the gospel is your entry door in, then we'll leave the gospel there, and now we'll go on to talk about you know, practical tips for this, that, or the other thing. This is thinking through what are the implications of the gospel for love life, for parenting, for work life, for friendships, for church, all of those things. And so last week we looked at uh, the implications of the gospel for our love life. Today is going to be on parenting. What are the implications of the gospel for parenting? The gospel summary statement that I've been using in this series is this, that we are sinners who've been saved and justified by grace learning to live as new creations, according to God's will, trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. There's a past, present, and future dynamic to that, and so I'm going to unpack kind of one part at a time, past, present, and future, talk about the implications. And I, I don't, do not worry if you do not have children or if you have never had children or ever will have children. If you're a child yourself, uh, this is still going to be applicable to you. So um, begin with the first element of that. We are sinners who have been saved and justified by grace. What does this mean? This is the first and most important element, I think, here of the gospel, which is this, that we are rebels against the holy God, that we have all sinned and fallen short, that we're staring at an eternity of separation from God unless someone intervenes because we on our own cannot make ourselves right with God. No amount of good works, going to church, giving to the poor, will ever make us right before a holy God. But the good news is that God loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life we could not live, to die a sacrificial death on the cross in our place, to rise again from the dead, conquering sin and death, so that all who turn from their sin, turn from their self-centeredness, to put their faith in him, will have eternal life. That's the gospel in a nutshell. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a gift of God's grace, as summed up in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, where Paul wrote, for it is by grace... You have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Grace, it's an undeserved gift given by an unobligated giver. That God owed us nothing and we deserved nothing. Nothing good at least. But God out of his grace gave us this offer of salvation, of eternal life. And it's not by our works, not by anything we've done. So again, We're not saying work for your salvation, but work out the implications of the salvation. And that word justified, in case you're unfamiliar with that, it's it's basically a, a, it's a a term that means not guilty, that you're declared not guilty before a holy God. Even though we've all sinned and fallen short, Jesus took all of that sin on himself, and now when God looks at us, he declares us not guilty. There's no condemnation. Nothing can separate us from his love. So how does this impact how we approach parenting. The first is this, that our self-worth 
is not tied to our performance as a parent or to whether or not we have children. Our self-worth is not tied to our performance as a parent or to whether or not we have children. If he has declared that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that we are perfect in his sight, we are not guilty. The verdict is already in on your life, that means. Nothing can change that. That when God looks at you, he sees his son, the perfection of his son. So when he looks at you, he sees you as his perfect beloved child. The verdict is in. You're loved. You are worthy of love. That means that that does not change depending upon whether or not you have children or how you are as a parent. Certainly those of you who have never had children, you look out in the life and you're probably tired of people asking you questions about like, are you having children? When are you going to have children? As if somehow you're incomplete without children. Jesus had no children biologically. Paul had no children biologically. I would not say that Jesus was incomplete because he had no children. I would not say that Paul lived a life short of God's standard because he had no children. Again, the verdict does not depend on whether or not we have children or how we are as a parent. It depends on God says about who we are. And many of you who do have children need to hear this as well. How many of you struggle with this? Your self-worth goes up and down on the basis of how your children are doing or how they think about you or how others think you're doing. Again, last week we looked at love life and how so often our self-worth rises and falls based on whether anyone loves us or what our husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend might think of us or whether we have anyone or not. And the same can be true of parenting. That our self-worth, how we feel about our value as a human being can rise or fall depending upon how our children are doing. But the gospel declares that your identity does not depend upon any of that. That God has already declared you loved and worthy because of Christ. That also means you don't have to pretend to be the perfect parent. I don't know if there are any perfect parents out there. But we don't have to pretend, we don't have to hide flaws and sins that in the end, it's, the gospel teaches us that it's humility that will probably do more to point our children to the gospel than trying to be perfect. Recognizing that we're sinners in need of a savior. That it's not about being perfect in every way. It's about pointing to the savior, the one who is perfect. One book that I enjoyed was called The Pastor's Kid by Barnabas Piper, son of a pastor named John Piper. And he wrote this. He said, we hear sinners need grace. But what do we see? Too often it is a lack of need, or rather a lack of admission of need. Too often we see parents who strive to present themselves as the flawless heroes they can never be, instead of the flawed, idiosyncratic, weird, and sinful people they really are. What the pastor's kid, or any kid, needs is parents who not only admit to being sinners, but actually admit to sins. It is far more powerful for a child to see his parents admitting, apologizing for, and working to correct real, actual sins. We know what sins our dad commits, but if he doesn't admit to them, we can lose respect for him. We also fail to learn to recognize sins in our own lives. And even if we do see them, we won't admit them. Why should we? Dad doesn't. Add up all those responses, and there is an even worse potential outcome. PKs, or children, never gain a sense of their own need for grace. We may have deep guilt because of an innate recognition of badness or incompleteness, we may suffer from identity issues, but none of this adds up in the child's mind 
to I need the grace of Jesus to fix all of this. Again, the point he's saying is it's not about trying to be the perfect parent. It's about humbly admitting sins because we have a Savior who died for our sins because we know that our identity and self-worth is not tied up in how our performance is as a parent. It's in who he says that we are. And so that frees us up to be honest, to be humble, to confess not just that we're a sinner, but specific sins. To show that we, as well, are sinners in need of a Savior. So that's the first implication of the gospel. That our self-worth is not tied to our performance as parents or even to whether or not we have children. Secondly, it's this. No child, no child is born a Christian, so pray for their salvation. Just because you're born to parents who are Christians or a parent who is a Christian does not make you a Christian. In fact, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. I think it's very important to see the contrast that Paul says here. It's not you once were ignorant and now you are wise. It's not once you were a bad person, but now you are a good person. He says once you were dead and now you're alive. And so it's not about taking children and making them good, making them moral, making them wise. We want to do all those things, but that doesn't save anyone. The reality is we are all spiritually dead in need of a Savior who will make us alive. And we cannot make any child come alive on our own, can we? It's completely got to be the work of God. Which means our job primarily is to pray for their salvation. Pray for God to reveal himself. Pray for God to make their spirit come alive. Because it's not about a bad child becoming good. It's about a dead child becoming alive. In other words, assume that your child is not a Christian unless you see real evidence of the new birth in them, unless you see evidence of a live spirit, of a desire for God. Because they're not born Christians just because you're a Christian. They're born, it says, dead, in need of becoming alive. Assume they're not a believer until you see real evidence of a desire for God. Because if they don't have that hunger, then they're going to leave your house eventually if they're, child, if they're young, And they're just going to do their own thing because there is no spirit within them desiring God. It's not just about making them good, making them wise. It's about the need for spiritual life. No child is born a Christian, so pray for their salvation. And on a related note, our primary goal, number three, is not moral children but heart transformation. I'm not saying you want immoral children. Certainly the desire is for children who do the right thing and know what the right thing is. But the primary focus is not morality. But it's heart transformation. Consider this quote from Tim Lane and Paul Tripp in their book Relationships. They said, One of the reasons teenagers are not excited by the gospel is that they do not think they need it. Many parents have successfully raised self-righteous little Pharisees. And when they look at themselves, they do not see a sinner in desperate need, so they are not grateful for a Savior. 
So yes, you can raise a well-mannered, nice, virtuous, young man or woman. But unless they see that they're a sinner in need of a savior, they're just going to become self-righteous little Pharisees who think they're good and better than others. Our primary goal is heart transformation. Remember Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, where God promises this. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is what we refer to as regeneration or being born again or being, having God's spirit within you. That what happens when you come to faith in Christ is not only are your sins forgiven, you're adopted as a child in God's family, but you're also regenerated, made new. That God puts his Holy Spirit in you. And now you have a desire to know God, a desire to follow him that was not there beforehand. It's not just you want to be a good person out of fear or out of guilt, but it's that you have a desire now, a heartfelt desire to know God and to serve him and know him more. That's what happens when you come to faith in Jesus. He does heart surgery on you. You're a new creation in Christ. So that's our goal, is heart transformation, praying that God would put his Holy Spirit in children. I mean, you think about all the things in this world. Anyone scared as they look out in the world? Anyone raising kids and look out in the world and frightened for them? And you could set up as many safeguards as you want. You could protect them from as much as you can try to. But in the end, the most important thing you do is focus on their heart, heart transformation. Because if they have God's spirit inside of them, then he will be leading them. He'll be guiding them. And you won't need to try to protect them from everything out there. So that's the first, that we are sinners who've been saved and justified by grace. That means that our self-worth is not tied to whether or not we have children or to our performance as parents. It means we recognize that we are dead, spiritually dead, in need of God's Holy Spirit to make us spiritually alive. And so we have to pray for the salvation of the young people in our lives and for our children. And our primary goal is not moral children, but heart transformation. Second aspect of this gospel message is this, that we are not only sinners who have been saved and justified by grace, but we are learning to live as new creations according to God's will. That God has put his Holy Spirit in us, and now we are new creations. We're no longer living for the things that we once lived as the people of this world, but now we are living for God, for him, by his Holy Spirit. What does this mean for us as parents? It means this, first and foremost, we must love mercifully and sacrificially. That as we look at the gospel, we see that Jesus loved mercifully and sacrificially, giving his life for those who did not deserve it. Laying down his life for us, even when we were his enemies. And Jesus tells us, be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Mercy is not giving someone the punishment they deserve not treating them as their sins deserve. And any parent knows that it takes a lot of mercy to raise a child. Showing them mercy, being willing to forgive, just as his mercies are new every morning, to start again, over and over, forgiving and showing mercy. Because we know how much mercy we've been shown. And loving sacrificially, 1 John three sixteen. this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives lives for our brothers. 
he defines here that love is sacrificial. It's not just a feeling, right? That love is sacrificial giving of ourselves. It's love in action. That just as Jesus laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for each other. And any love for any children is going to hurt. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to be a source of stress. It's going to interrupt our plans. But this is what love is. It's sacrificial. You might be called upon to sacrifice career at times, to sacrifice time, to sacrifice reputation, to sacrifice hobbies, to sacrifice friendships, all out of love for your children. But that's what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for each other. Think of John 13, where Jesus brings his disciples together before he's going to be arrested and crucified. And what does he do to show how he loves them? He washes their feet. He takes the role of a servant to love them and show them this is what it means to love. It's to get dirty, to wash each other's feet. To show by your example of love the goodness of God, the sacrificial love of Jesus. More than the things you say, it's the actions of your life. Archbishop Tlaatson put it this way, to give children good instruction and a bad example is but beckoning to them with the head to show them the way to heaven, but while we take them by the hand and lead them in the way to hell. To show by your example of sacrificial love how you've been loved, to show by your example of forgiveness and mercy how you've been forgiven and shown mercy. Second aspect of learning to live as new creations according to God's will is this, discipline them to maturity. Again, if we believe that we are born in sin, dead spiritually, we're not just blank slates, we're not just good innately, then we understand that we must discipline children. We must discipline them to maturity. As Paul David Tripp put it, I never had to teach my children to hit one another, to be jealous, to speak unkindly, to push to the front of the line, to announce that their lunch was better than their neighbors, to brag about their achievements, and to turn everything into a competition. We're not by nature innately good. We're made in the image of God, but we are twisted. There's sin in us, and therefore children need to be disciplined to maturity. That's part of love is discipline. Their first word tends to be no, not yes. Proverbs 23, 13 to 14, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with the rod, he will not die. Punish him with the rod and save his soul from death. I am not advocating hitting your child with a rod here. I am just pointing out the metaphor here that discipline is not going to kill a child. It will, in fact, save a child from death. Hebrews 12, 10 to 11, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. He says that's the way God is. He disciplines us for our holiness. And that's the way he calls parents to be, to be willing to discipline their children towards maturity and holiness. 
Love mercifully and sacrificially. Discipline them to maturity. And then the third aspect is this. Make your family more than blood relatives. Make your family more than blood relatives. That is something, again, that in our culture, the nuclear family can become an idol very easily. Children can become an idol very easily. That I want to make sure my children are safe, my children are protected from influences out in the world. But Jesus said it's not to be that way. Again, Jesus did not have children of his own, but he redefined what family was all about. In Matthew 12, 46 to 50. I'm sorry, I went too far. Uh, Matthew 12, 46 to 50. Jesus is speaking to the crowd, and his mother and his brothers stood outside wanting to speak with him. Someone told them, your mother and brothers are outside waiting to speak with you. And he replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So what does Jesus say family is? Family is not just my biological mother. It's not just my biological brothers. Family is whoever's doing the will of God. Make your family more than a nuclear family. That means, again, if you either A, do not have children, or B, have children who are grown up and are not a part of this church, you are part of parenting. You are part of being a grandparent, an uncle, an aunt, whatever it may be, that you are a spiritual father or mother. You are a spiritual grandfather or grandmother. Look around the room. There are children here who belong to you, even if they're not your biological children. They belong to you as part of the family of God. And you have a responsibility to help raise them, to point them to Jesus. You can do that through serving in Sunday school. If you're like, I just don't feel comfortable walking up to a child and introducing myself, there's opportunities to serve in children's church, in the nursery, to get to know children, to point them to Jesus. The third Sunday of every month, something we used to do and we've resurrected, is giving an opportunity for someone in the church to talk to the 6th to 12th graders and share their faith story with them, to let them know how they came to faith, what it means for them to live as a Christian. Again, it's an opportunity to play a spiritual parent role or spiritual grandparent role in the lives of the young people of this church. Jesus redefines family. It's not just a nuclear family that you have to protect from the world, but the family of God is your family. And you have brothers and sisters here, even if you don't have biological brothers and sisters. And you have children here, even if you don't have biological children. You have grandchildren here, even if you don't have biological grandchildren. Redefine family. It's more than just your biological family. And along these lines, can I encourage you to consider adoption and foster care as well? Part of the gospel is that God adopted us as his children. When we come to faith, it says we become adopted children of God. And adoption is very much in line with the gospel. It's a proclamation, again, that family is more than just nuclear family, that we open our family to those who are in need. We're not about protecting our family from the influence of the world. Some of you know that our family has been doing foster care for 14 years now. That we've been licensed foster parents. And it is a challenge to open your home and have children come in and stay at your home. It is not easy. You do pray for God's protection. 
but it is part of what it means to have a family that is more than just biological. To showcase the gospel through opening your home and being hospitable. And I encourage you to consider that, that family is more than just a biological family. If you do not have children of your own, you have spiritual children in this church that are your responsibility to point to Jesus. One of the best, one of the most important things for children, I've I've read books where it talks about one of the most important things for children coming to faith is to have other believers in their life besides their parents. Because you know what? They're going to tune out their parents at some point. But if they have other believers in their lives who are adults who point them to Jesus, that goes a long way. So again, I encourage you, make your family about more than just a biological family. Whether it is through the children of this church, whether it is through young people in this church, or whether it is through foster care and adoption. Last aspect is this. We're sinners who've been saved and justified by grace, learning to live as new creations according to God's will, trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. And I only have one thing to say about this, and that is this. Prepare your children first and foremost for eternity, not worldly happiness and success. If you believe that this life is not all there is, if you believe that there is life after death and that what matters more than anything else is being right with God and that when we are with him, we will have everything our hearts have desired for all eternity, then that means the primary goal is not our children's worldly happiness or success. That it might not be going to college, getting a high-paying job, buying a house, or all the other things that the world values as success. What's most important is that they are right with God, that they are living for him. They're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's what matters more than anything. And that can be very hard sometimes as parents if they take a non-traditional path. But that's what's most important. Not the things that our world says make you successful, but that they are seeking God and his kingdom. As Jesus put it, in Mark eight thirty-five to 36, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What good is it for your son or daughter, grandson or granddaughter, to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul in the process? We're preparing children first and foremost for eternity, not worldly happiness and success.